In Daniel, a young teen faces the brainwashing pressures of the most powerful ruler in the world. Will he stay true to his childhood faith, or will he be swept away by the world system? Let's join Dave Wurtson as we begin studying this Old Testament book. My own two little granddaughters, Leela and Fiona, started school, and I got pictures from Courtney with her with Blythe going away to school and Fiona going away to school, and all of those that have little ones going away to school, that's a big transition time. And when our kids go away to college or out into a career, that's a big transition time. How many of you have fears about the influence of the world that they're entering into? I know when Mary and I sent our kids down to Austin, And especially when we went away for Parents Weekend, as we drove back up 35, we were concerned. I mean, UT is not exactly the bastion of evangelical Christianity. And though there are fantastic churches there, uh, my son was going to face a professor that would say that we're going to go back and study the Bible, but we're going to overturn a lot of the, you know, a lot of your conceptions about it. And thankfully, the professor really kind of protected the evangelical kids in some ways, which is part of what we're going to learn as we say the book of Daniel, that it's not just all the opposition out there. But how many of you have ever felt that you're living at your job, at your school, um, in situations that you face, like you're living in a world that is against your commitment to God? Anybody ever feel that way? Does anybody ever feel like you're under besiege? Can you imagine being 14 years of age? From the time you were a little kid, you've offered sacrifices three times a year at the Jerusalem temple. You've been taught that the great I am created the universe. You've been taught that the, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God that's going to bring the Messiah into the world. You've been taught that Jerusalem's the place where the holy presence of God lives, and the holy land is the land of Judea. It's the land of Israel. You've been taught that from the time you were a kid. Suddenly, there's a mighty king outside the walls of Jerusalem. And this king has just beaten the most powerful force that was opposing him, the king of Egypt. He just beat Pharaoh Necho at a battle called the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And he marched down because there was this great power vacuum and he came down. And the reason that he's around the city of Jerusalem is that he's mopping up after this great battle. He's beginning to subjugate all the peoples of the world. And he is able to come in through those walls. Your king has to submit to him. Your king, unlike Hezekiah, who was able to get down on his knees and ask the Lord a hundred years earlier, please protect us, and the Lord delivered him, this time there was no deliverance. And you're taking 500 miles away from your home. You're not going to ever see your parents again, probably. You're taken away from the Jerusalem temple. In fact, in a few years after you're deported, that whole Jerusalem temple is going to be leveled. And you're sitting in the most powerful city of the ancient Near East. What are you going to do? How many of you kids have ever wondered, how in the world can I pass on the faith to my kids? Anybody ever ask that? And there's approaches to that. One of the approaches is, let's just isolate our kids. 
We're going to make sure that they never get in touch with this great world system. And there's a lot of people in the area that have decided that. There's another approach is let's just join it. And a lot of your kids are going to do that. A lot of kids, in fact, the, uh, the majority of kids that go down to a big university like the University of Texas, give them about two months, and they look just like all the other worldlings. They look just like everyone else. They're just secularized. They get drunk like everyone else. They're immoral like everyone else. They start living to find the good job, or they begin to forget all about what we taught them at Midlothian Bible Church, and they're just assimilated. But there's a third group. There's a third group, and we're going to be learning about this third group for the next several months. This third group is a group that lives in the world. They live in the world. They don't isolate themselves from the world. They don't assimilate to the world, but instead, living in the world, they bring redemption to the world. And that's what I want to talk to you about, and I want to pray together, and I want us to work together, because I'm a grandfather, so I've already raised my kids. And I want to share with you from the book of Daniel, I want you to turn there, because what you need to realize is the book of Daniel is not just a book of esoteric prophecies. We're going to look at the future of the world and learn some incredible things about history and God's control over it, and what are you going to do in the future. Daniel's going to talk about a future that's still future to us. But a much deeper message is you need to t- start to help your kids to answer the question, number one, who's in control of the world? And that's where we're going to begin. As your teenager is removed, as Daniel was removed 500 miles away, when he was just about 14 years of age, when you're taken to Babylon, the big question that he needed to ask himself is, who is control of the world? Who do you think is in control of the world? Turn to Daniel chapter 1, and let's see the conflict that's raised, because that's a tough question. Who's in control of the people at your work? Who's in control of the presidential election that we're involved in right now? Who's in control of the Democratic Party? Who's in control of the Republican Party? Who's in control of the world that we live in? How do you answer that question? Look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the third year, everybody got it? In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, that's the king of Judea. King of Judah, Jehoiakim is the son of David. He's in the line of the Messiah. He is ruling in Judah. He is the king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, that's the big one. That's the son of a guy named Nabopolazar. Nabopolazar was the beginning ruler. He was a Chaldean. He was able with the Medes to defeat the city of Nineveh throughout the Assyrian Empire, which had destroyed the northern kingdom. And Nabopolazar is now gathering the armies of Babylon. It was his son, Nebuchadnezzar, that conquered Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish in 605. And it's Nebuchadnezzar who surrounded the walls of Jerusalem. And we're going to see what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Along with some of the articles from the temple, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put him in the treasure house of his God. Now, if you're a 14-year-old, 14-year-olds, how many of you have 14-year-olds? 14-year-olds are in ancient Israel, bar mitzvah already. They've already become sons of the commandment. In our culture, it takes you till you're 35 till you really get away from mom and dad. But in the ancient Near East, they really, they should, they put their kids out. In fact, I've told you my story. My parents kind of put me out when I was 12 and a half, and I was out on my own pretty much, not completely. But in the ancient world, Daniel is about 14. 
because that's when training begins. And we'll find out later in this chapter, he's put in Babylonian training. Lots of sources that say they took kids that were 14 and trained them until they were about 17 or 18 in their schooling. Evidently, in the ancient world, they were smarter than us. It didn't take so long to go to graduate school and everything. Lots of reasons for that. That's another story. The verses that I just read, if you're Daniel, who would you say is in control of the world? Somebody want to tell me? Raise your and tell me. Based upon the fact that I just read, who would you say is in control of the world? Nebuchadnezzar. And the kingdom of Babylon. I want you to know that as Daniel was marched into Babylon, he came through the Ishtar Gate, which you can go to the British Museum, and it is gorgeous. There's incredible lions. The lions are the, uh, the picture of the authority of Babylon. This is what he saw. Incredible. Those walls are 80 feet high. The teenagers, instead of having drag races down in Ennis, they're having chariot races around that wall. There's a wall that is as wide as 635. You could put about four chariots of breath just beside each other racing like in Ben-Hur. That's what Daniel saw. As he goes through this Ishtar gate, it goes right to the temple of Marduk. And what did I just read to you? Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. In the ancient Near East, the vessels in the temple were sacred. They belonged to the God of that temple. And in the ancient Near East, everything is connected with your God and your temple. And the temple of Marduk is right up through the Ishtar Gate. And it goes all the way through this incredible house of Marduk. And Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels and he put them in the temple of Marduk. So throughout the ancient Near East, as you went to the University of Babylon, if you asked the professors at the University of Babylon, who's in control here, they would have all said, Marduk is. And I want you to know something about their religion. The Babylonian religion is like putting your hand on a mirror. All their religion is, is a picture of their own power. Their gods are like the soap opera of the ancient Near East, and all it is is kind of a mythologized uh, soap opera of all the intrigues among the Babylonian kings. They also worship nature. They worship the moon. They worship the sun. They worship the stars, a lot like our society. In a lot of our society, nature is all there is. Mass energy is just a fancy way of saying E equals MC squared, Nobody created that. Nobody purposed it. Everything is just chance and probability. It's just the same Babylonian belief. And I want you to know it's a dominating belief. And I want all of you parents to know that you need to raise your kids that as they live out there in the world, there are going to be a lot of influences, a lot of influences, and a lot of evidence that says the God of the Bible isn't in control. So the big tension I want you to feel the big tension I want you to feel is, how do you answer the question, who's in control of the world? From all the natural standpoint, it looks like Marduk is in control of the world. Actually, the king of Babylon is in control of the world. And it looks like what Daniel should do, the smart thing for Daniel to do, is to just assimilate, go along with the king of Babylon. I'm going to throw another crook in it. It looks like there's an error in the Bible. Because if you look at Daniel chapter 1, what year does it say that it was when Daniel was taken captive? It was the what year of Jehoiakim. 
If you look back at Jeremiah 25, verse 1, it'll say it's the fourth year. And if you were a student many years ago at the University of Texas or at Harvard or at Yale or one of the other Ivy League schools, your professor would tell you there's a flat-out contradiction in the Bible. You believe this is inspired. The prophet Jeremiah said he breathed out the very words of Yahweh. He's got the date wrong, or Daniel's got the date wrong. They're both in the inspired revelation. Ha-ha, the Bible has a grievous error in it. And lots of students threw their Bible away, started drinking Friday night, joined the sororities and all the fraternities, threw out their Bible, stopped going to church. I don't believe in God anymore. That's not really why they did it. It was evil in their heart that made them do it. But I want every kid to listen to me. When all the facts are in, God's revelation through archaeology, when it's true archaeology, God's revelation through Assyrian studies, and I have friends that have spent their life studying Assyriology, which is about Babylon and Assyria and the cuneiform and the Sumerian and the Akkadian language, really eggheads, but that's what they do. When all the facts are in, when all the facts are in in Sam's field of math, when all the facts are in, to bio, in on biology, when we really accurately read the book of nature and we accurately read the book of God's word, they will line up. There will not be contradiction. And I want to give you, in this case, it's already solved. We did a little bit more digging. We did a little bit more digging in Assyria and Babylon, where Daniel is at present. It says that it's in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. And in Babylon, if you came to power, say, in October, they didn't count the first year of your reign until January. Now, they have different months, and I don't want to get into all that because it would be confusing. You got it? In Babylon, they don't count what we call the ascension year, the accession year, the year that if you come to power in October, I don't count October through December as year one. I wait till the new year. Does that make sense? That's the way the Babylonians do that, not making it up. We know that from the Babylonian Chronicle. We know that from other Babylonian literature. We know that's what they did. In Israel, we know, guess what they did? The Israelites counted, they counted October through December, as the very first year. So when Jeremiah, in a Judean-Israelite context, says the fourth year of Jehoiakim, he's using which reckoning? Israelite reckoning. Because he's writing to Israelites, and he is still writing from the perspective of Judea. Daniel is writing to us from the perspective of man in Babylon. So actually, it's incredibly accurate. Your professor in the university that told you to forget the Bible should have told you we need to wait. Let's dig, do a little bit more digging. And when we did do a little more digging, we found out Daniel's incredibly accurate. How in the world did Daniel know that in Babylon they didn't count the year of accession and in Israel they did? So the Bible's without error. And that happens time and time and time again. There's a twist in the verses that I just read to you, an incredible twist. Everything in the paragraph that I read to you would say Nebuchadnezzar's in control. Can anybody tell me what the twist in the narrative is? Who's in control? Nebuchadnezzar attacks. 
Nebuchadnezzar wins the victory. Nebuchadnezzar besieges. Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels from the temple and takes them to the temple of his God. Who's in control? The Lord. Y'all saw that. And the Lord. And he uses the word Adonai. We, and we sing that. Our praise team and our worship leaders like to use the name Adonai in some of our praise courses and in some of our hymns. Adonai is the word for God that means the great sovereign ruler. And what the writer of Daniel is challenging every young person here to understand, he's challenging every adult to understand, is that it looks like as Daniel arrives in Babylon and he walks through that Ishtar gate, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar and his god Marduk is in control, but Daniel as a 14-year-old kid realized, no, he isn't. No, he isn't. Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God that I was raised being taught about, I'm going to put my confidence in the fact that he is in control. And that leads to the second thing. The very first thing you need to challenge your kids about and you need to be challenged about is who do you think is in control of the world? The second thing you need to be thinking about is who is going to control your life. It's one thing to think that the great Adonai controls the world. But who do you think controls your life? And that's what the next paragraph, look at verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family without, with no physical defect. They're handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed. They'd win American Idol. They would be able to model. They'd also go to Princeton University. These guys are really hot royal uh, sons. It says they're showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They're well-informed, quick to understand, and they're qualified to serve in the king's palace. They're qualified to stand before the king. He was, this chief official of Babylon, Ashpenaz, is supposed to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, which would be cuneiform, and all these wedge little things, going way back a thousand, more than a couple thousand years before the time of Daniel. They're going to learn all the stuff of Sumer that some of you kids will learn out of the beginning of your world history classes. They're going to learn all about the Akkadian culture. They're going to learn all about Babylon. And it's going to take them three years to master this new language, which would be this ancient uh, cuneiform writing, and they'd also become very adept at Akkadian, which is one of the languages I was telling you about earlier. They also learned the Aramaic language, which a lot of our books are going to be written in, which was like English in the modern world. It was the language of government and business. So it says that these guys are going to be assimilated. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were entered the king's service. What are you going to do? Who's going to be in control of your life? You've been taken away from home. The king of the world promises you, go through Princeton for three years because you're really smart. You can do a four-year program in three. When you get done, I'm going to give you the top job in Washington. I'm going to give you incredible wealth. You're going to be at the top of the food pyramid. That's the kind of a choice that Daniel is offered. And that's the kind of a choice your kids are going to face. In fact, it's a choice that every one of you face. You decide who's in control of your life. And a lot of you decide is, I'm in control of my life. And I'm going to do with my life what I want to do. Especially if something goes wrong with your Sunday school God. Daniel could have argued, I've had it with Yahweh. All that the great I am has got me is in captivity in Babylon, I'll never see my homeland again. Not going to see my parents again. He was defeated. 
He was proved to be weak. He was proved not to be able to live in the real world. It's a bunch of mythology. It's really not true. And young people, parents, your young people are going to face that kind of thinking. One of the things we talk about in our church family a lot, you got to own your own faith. Every one of our kids growing up, we train them, we train them, we train them, we train them. But there's a great mysterious choice that needs to be made. And all these adults need to make it. As you sit here today, every one of you is answering the question, who is in control of my life? If you leave this room and you leave the great I am and you leave his principles, you leave his messages, and you live in your secular world just like everyone else, if you follow what your secular world does, if as a businessman or woman, you got on an airplane and go to California and you forget about your commitment to the I am, you have decided that I'm in control of the world. I'm in control of my life. And I don't believe that the great God of the universe is in control. I don't believe in the biblical message. I really feel I'm in control. And what I want you to feel is the tension of that choice. I want you to feel what your kids face. Your kids go into high school. Some of your kids just started high school. There will be one group of kids that want to really internalize their faith. They want to really live for the Lord. In our culture, it's very acceptable to be part of a really good church. What's not acceptable is to really live it out. It's to really be a football player that doesn't take the name of the Lord in vain, that doesn't get drunk, that keeps his priorities right, that is morally pure. There's nothing wrong with going to church on Sunday, but the struggle is does it impact the way that I live in Babylon during the week? And one of the great dichotomies in our culture that we need to really pray about is we have a veneer, we have a surface of, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I go to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I'm a born-again believer. It just doesn't make a bit of difference in the way that I live. And what I want you to know as your pastor teacher is Daniel in Babylon... There wasn't any reason from a human standpoint for him to keep following the great I am. And the next verse is incredibly powerful. The incredible power of the next verse is that, and I want to get with Daniel, and most of all, I want to meet Daniel's parents and his grandparents. Because by some incredible gift of God, they raised the teenagers so your kids can do it. Your kids can make decisions like Daniel. That's what I want you to cry out for. Look at the next verse. It says that Daniel purposed in his heart. It says that he would not defile himself. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the chief official, gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And if you study those names, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is you change a person's name, you change their identity. So what he does is take a man, just to give you an illustration of, Daniel means the Lord is my judge. And Nebuchadnezzar changes his name, is Mabel. Belteshazzar means Mabel protect his life. To give you another example, Abednego, Azariah means Yahweh will help me. Abednego in Akkadian means the servant of the moon god Nebo. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he takes every one of these Hebrew names that these boys heard from the time they were kids, and what he does is he switches them to a Babylonian name that every time they hear their name, they hear the Babylonian uh, gods, and Babylon's in control of their life. But look what Daniel does. It's the verse that I just quoted for you, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It said he was a, he was a young man without blemish physically. 
what he just decided is, I'm going to be a young man that's without blemish internally. I'm not just going to look good on the outside, but I'm going to have a character that is not marred, that is not scarred. And most of all, I'm going to have a heart that in the midst of a world system that looks like Yahweh has blown it and Yahweh in control, I'm going to be under the control of the great I am. How does he decide to express it? He says, Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, there's a lot of debate on exactly what Daniel was doing. Because we could say, well, the food in Babylon would not be according to Levitical rules. That's true. They wouldn't, especially the meat. And so that might be part of it. They didn't make the meat according to Levitical rules. It was like what my Orthodox Jewish friends would call it was not kosher. So one of the ways that would be expressing it is that Daniel chooses not to eat unclean food. But the prophets tell us in the book of Ezekiel and in Jeremiah that, and Hosea that all the food eaten away from the Holy Land is viewed as unclean. And also wine, interesting enough, is not part of the uncleanness. You don't have unclean wine in the Old Testament. So when he mentions food and wine, it makes it hard to hold that it was just Levitical laws. If you, in D- Daniel chapter 11, it talks to us about people that are following a king like Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll get to that in several weeks. But it says that they were the commanders of his army, and they ate the delicacy of the king table. I want all the young people to know this. Listen, the person that feeds you controls your life. Did you all hear that? So if you're 35 years of age and your daddy still feeds you, then don't tell me that you're on your own because you ain't. The person that feeds you has control of your life. If you think your boss at work feeds you and you'll do anything to keep your job, including disregarding being obedient to God's word because you're scared, then your boss controls your life. In the ancient Near East, a king would give his chosen ones the best food. For example, when I go to prison on the Bill Glass crusade, not to serve time, and we go to lunch, when you eat with the inmates, it stinks. But we're also told to eat with the guards. And if you eat with the guards, it's good. That's the royal delicacy. And who is in control in the prison? The guards are. And that's what's going on here. That's a modern illustration of how you can feel it, how you make distinctions. And Nebuchadnezzar is declaring, you belong to me by the steak and the wine that you eat that comes from the same table that I eat. And you're declaring that I am the owner of your life. And Daniel, like all of us, had to decide, where am I going to draw the line? And we find out later in the chapter that Daniel decides that he will learn the language and the culture and the learning of the Babylonians. He becomes better at it than the Babylonians. 
We find out that Daniel chooses that it's time for him to live at least 70 years in captivity, just the way Jeremiah the prophet told him. So Daniel doesn't draw the line like some of you feel. You draw the line we're going to withdraw from public society. As a young pastor, one of the things that I've decided in Midlothian Bible Church is I'm not going to teach you to withdraw from your society. One of my major objectives in teaching you this morning is I want to give you skill, I want to give you truth so that you will go into the public school, you will go into the Christian school. If you homeschool, you will have a homeschool that's connecting with unbelievers so that your kids are connected in unbelieving soccer teams and unbelieving hockey teams. And if you're not, or unbelieving orchestras, because if you're not, your kids are going to never see the power of the great I am. So please listen to me. What's going to help your kids to really make it a decision like Daniel is when you have your kids see the power of the great I am to meet your needs, to change people's lives, to really touch unbelieving people, that our kids were raised where they were exposed in extreme cases to horrors that we picked up in Dallas, and they saw Christ come into their life, and they changed. They saw the change. They saw people that they knew were drunk before they came to know Jesus, and they became not intoxicated. In fact, they became leaders in our church of all things. That's what your kids need to see. I want to plead with you. It's not a decision of where you send your kids to school. It's a philosophy. And the book of Daniel's teaching is that the Lord God in heaven is the ultimate daddy, chose not to isolate his children from the world system. He took their greatest leader, Moses, and put him in Egypt. He took Daniel, one of the other epitomes of a hero for teenagers, and he put him right in Babylon. But he wants those young people living in the world system to decide they're not going to defile themselves. And Daniel drew the line and says, I'm not going to be controlled by the king. Give me bread and grain and vegetables. And he isn't teaching vegetarianism, although you might want to try it. You'll probably lose weight. But what he was teaching is Daniel was declaring, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't control my life. Babylon doesn't control my life. The Lord God of heaven controls my life. When I was a kid, well, I told you I went away to high school in Florida. When I was 13, it was my freshman year, and I read this passage. I was studying Dr. Wearsby, Warren Wearsby's book on Dare to Be a Godly Teenager. And I read a chapter on Daniel. And Dr. Wearsby said, as a teenager, who's going to control your life? Who are you going to live for? And I was almost a couple thousand miles away from New Jersey where I was raised. And I wasn't going to be with my parents again on a regular basis. And a bunch of my kids in a Christian school, my fellow quarterback that played right alongside of me, had intercourse with his girlfriend in a Christian school on a regular basis. Kids took drugs in our Christian school. The girl that I was going with at the time left that Christian school and got involved in the underworld and almost lost her life. And Mary and I saw her little brother out in California, and she had blown away her skill intellectually by taking drugs. And that's where I began to realize, you know, just being in a Christian environment, this was the preeminent Christian school. Billy Graham's daughter was in my class. 
but it didn't make us godly because evil's inside. You gotta make a decision about who you're gonna lean on and who you're gonna depend upon. And I heard these words, Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel resolved in his heart. Daniel decided he was not gonna defile himself. He was gonna live for the great I am and not for Nebuchadnezzar. As a little kid, teenage kid, my freshman year in high school, I got down on my face in my room because I had read somewhere that that's the way Daniel prayed three times a day later on in the book. And I said, Lord, I want to be like Daniel. I want a purpose in my heart that I'm going to live for you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to live clean. And I want to live pure. And I'm going to live in the world, but I'm going to be different than the world. You know, that was a great choice. And I believe as we start this, this series on Daniel that maybe some of you, as teenagers, as adults, you need to make that decision. Who is the ruler of your life? Who is in control of your life? And then we close with the rest of the chapter wrestled with the question is, who will bring us success? And it's about the 10-day test. As you live in the world, if you make a decision that you're going to live for the great I am, you're going to live in the New Testament sense, obedient to Jesus in the school, in your business, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, if you're going to live wholly committed to the great I am, you've got to realize you're going to be tested. And the test came when the Babylonian official said, Daniel, I can't do that. Because if I give you bread and water and grain and vegetables, which is what the words in Hebrew mean, when we get done with this three years of training, you're going to look like a Vietnam POW. He didn't say that, but that'll give you a picture. And when you look like a Vietnam POW and the guy sitting next to you looks like a linebacker from the University of Texas, I'm going to get my head cut off. Now, that's a legitimate concern. As you live in the world, how many of you have ever met believers in your secular job, in the secular school system, at universities, that claim they're being persecuted for Jesus? When you've heard a little voice inside of you saying, they're getting persecuted because they're dumb. They're foolish. They don't do a good job. They're not understanding of people. One of the reasons I'm starting the book of Daniel is we're in a political time. We're going to be moving towards November when we're going to have political decisions to make and the government's going to rest on your shoulder. And one of the things that you need to decide is will I be of the world or will I really live for God in the world? Will I be like Daniel and keep myself pure? How many of you are a little bit scared about what's happening in the United States right now? You need to not be afraid. It makes you lie. It makes you send things on email that are not true, that you don't check out on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans. When you're afraid, you polarize and you don't live wisely like Daniel. And you begin to feel that everything is the enemy out there. And did you just read in this text, Daniel has a guard that's over him And the guard makes a connection with Daniel. He's loyal to him. 
and the guard has compassion for him. How many of you have ever met a person that you never expected in a million years? You didn't think that they knew anything about the I am, but they made a connection with you. And maybe as your boss, they showed love for you, and they showed compassion for you, and they kept their promises. Brethren and sisters, do you realize now a Democratic candidate in his speech said we all need to try to lower abortion. That doesn't sound like the speeches I heard a few years ago. Do I agree with the Democratic platform? Do I agree with the Republican platform? Do I agree with any of the secular platform? But as a believer, you know what? I am rejoicing. Something's happening. In the Democratic Convention, motherhood is back in again. As believers, that's salt and light. Something's happening. I don't need to be scared. I've got the great I am. Daniel's in a horrible position, but we're going to study through this book. People that live for God, salt and light, all different, realizing that the world system isn't the new Jerusalem. It's not God's kingdom, but we can be salt and light like Daniel. We can bring truth. We can keep people from slandering. We can keep things in perspective, realizing that governments, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar's government or Obama's government or McCain's government, it's not going to answer the problems of my life. But the great I am is. And Daniel's wife, he lives in the secular world, he says, hey, just give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days. Really skillful plan. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three buddies that joined him looked better than all the other guys eating all those steaks or camel meat or sheep meat. And at the end of the period, when Nebuchadnezzar calls them in for their oral exam, Daniel and his three buddies are 10 times smarter than everybody else. And a chapter closed with Daniel continued to the reign of Cyrus. Brothers and sisters, the reason I want you to live for the great I am, the reason I don't want you to live in this secular system afraid, the reason I want us to really make a decision like Daniel, is because I believe when I ask the question, who's in control of the world? Who's in control of your life? And who will bring you success? See, one of the big decisions you need to decide is, if God's in control of the world, will he ultimately be a loving, faithful, good, heavenly dad? And in the New Testament perspective, that might not be answered until we're finally home. Because for you as New Testament believers, God has upped the ante. The kingdom that you're looking for is not some measly kingdom in Jerusalem. You're looking for a city that's without earthly foundation. You're looking for the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven that's given to us a gift. Do you believe that? But I want to share with you as I stand before you. As a 13-year-old kid, my freshman year, I got down on my face and says, I'm in a purpose of my heart. I believe Daniel was right. I believe Daniel made the right choice. Now at 58, I can look back over a lot of choices. I can look back over a lot of living. And I want to tell every child and every teenager, that was a really great decision when I was a young teenager. And it's still a good decision. Maybe the Lord has touched some of your heart 
You know, maybe you're not 13. You know, maybe you're 82. But you need to nail it down. I'm going to join with Daniel. I'm going to purpose in my heart. As I begin the fall, as I move into a new season of life, I'm going to follow that kind of decision. I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to purpose in my heart that I'm going to give my life totally to the great I am because I believe he really is in control.